Well, as I mentioned, Doug Ford celebrating a landslide victory in yesterday's provincial election in Ontario after he won 83 of the 124 seats up for grabs. That's more than the 76 he won in 2018. It was a bad night for the NDP, not quite as bad as it was for the Liberals. Uh, Stephen Del Duca resigned. He lost his seat. He didn't. He lost a seat he had lost in 2018 as well. Andrea Horvath of the NDP won her seat, but also chose to, chose to step down as leader uh, after winning 31 seats. That's down from nine last time. The Liberals, just eight seats, one more than 2018, no official party status. They got a lot of votes, but it just didn't work for them. So after 16 years in power, things not looking good for the Ontario Liberals. Doug Ford today, well, as always, the winner calls for unity. Number one you know, message I want to get out, uh, it's time for unity. We want to make sure we unite this province, we want to move forward, because it's not us versus, versus people down the street, it's Ontario versus every jurisdiction in the world. Doug Ford there today, sounding magnanimous after his win, uh, as one would. Uh, now, keep in mind, this was a politician who was booed at the Raptors' victory parade after they won the NBA championship a few years ago. So how did he manage to turn things around so unequivocally? Well, to look at the results, the impact, uh, what could have been behind the success and the low turnout, I'm joined now by Richard Johnston. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for your time on this Friday evening. Hi there. So, you know, this was a big win. I don't think even the polls predicted it would be so decisive. Uh, what do you think made the difference? What were Ontarians voting for last night? Well, the status quo, basically. I think entirely too much is made of the scale of the win. The fact of the matter is that net he gained 0.3 percentage points of the popular vote. It's essentially a total replay of the last time around, as far as the Conservatives are concerned. With uh, the, the change was that even though he evidently was a weak leader, not happy with his performance, Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals gained just enough votes to hand six NDP seats over to the Conservatives. Meanwhile, there were, there were nine seats that went missing from the Conservative caucus mostly because Doug Ford kicked him out. There were a couple of vacancies that weren't filled. And so over half of the apparent seat gain from the standings at the dissolution were just returning seats to the conservative fold that had been there four years ago. And then the other half, or 40% or so, was the result of vote splitting induced by the modest but not sufficiently great rise of the liberals at the expense of the NDP. That's, Certainly that was be- that's the election day story. It's not like there's some resounding stampede that, 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 uh, that the very large number of seats that Doug Ford won, and he surely did reflect some kind of Ontario wide consensus. <laughs> Uh, certainly the voter turnout would suggest that. I mean, voter turnout is one of those weird things, but 43%, that is abysmal. That is it abysmal is. in it, a democracy. It, it, it's, 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 I, I'm absolutely sure it is the worst amongst provincial electorates since COVID. I mean, not that, the, not that the turnout in any of the provincial elections in the last couple of years have anything to write home about, frankly, and that's true in BC too. But 43% is is. We're starting to look at what Americans get in congressional off-year elections. It's it's dismal. Uh, whether it made any difference, the only thing that occurs to me is that 
some of those voters might have gone to Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals if he could give them something to get excited about. Yeah, that seemed to be the the big problem here was that uh, oftentimes in an election like this one, where a lot of the coverage is about the horse race, a lot of the polls are indicating it's a foregone conclusion, it's really up to the opposition parties to drive up interest, to build some momentum. And clearly in this election, neither the NDP or the Liberals managed to do that. And they spent most of their time trying to persuade each other that their side was strategically in a better position as opposed to giving reasons why Doug Ford should not return as premier. They just failed to do that. I did drag up these numbers. So in BC in 2020, 53.9%. In the last federal election, 62.6%. In the last US election, 66.1%. Uh, I mean, we I brought this up off the top. You know, the Australians, we always point to them when we get dismal uh, turnout rates. Uh, do you think mandatory voting would be something that would work here? Oh, oh it could. I mean, it's not going to happen. The, no. the circumstances that produced mandatory voting in Australia were very peculiar, had to do with vote splits uh, on the right. Uh, and to this day, the liberal coalition side of Australian politics would actually be happy to get rid of mandatory voting. It's labor that wants to keep it. So it's a, it's, it's an, I think it's part of what makes Australian elections quite special. There are some other characteristics as well. I think they're generally more satisfying operations than the one we, ones we run. But the politics of making uh, voting compulsory is very peculiar, very difficult. When you look at this election, I mean, we're heading into a a conservative uh, leadership race, or we are in a conservative leadership race federally. We will, and the membership uh, deadline is tonight in just a few hours. Uh, When you look at this Ontario election, is there any advice out there? Is there anything to learn for parties in other provinces and uh, for federal parties? Well, I think that, the thing that commentators on the plight of the federal conservatives keep forgetting, they commonly refer to the difficulty of conservatives for winning Ontario. They, they, they forget that the government of Ontario is a conservative government and that Doug Ford found the key to victory and it wasn't hard to see. He he built an electoral coalition whose base, to be sure, is in the more rural and small town parts of the province. Uh, the less diverse constituencies and so on, but he could not have won the province had he not able to make himself credible to large numbers of voters in the GTA and even on the fringes of the city of Toronto itself. So they should be looking at him and asking themselves, what, what's, what, is, the, what is his coalition? It's got a populist tinge to it. It surely does. Um, it's, it is very conservative, probably more conservative than many of the people who actually vote for him. But it is not ethnically exclusive. He doesn't play race cards. He doesn't play xenophobic cards. And, uh, and yet he wins, you know, enough. Uh, if, if the federal liberals could reproduce his coalition in Ontario, and there's no reason why they can't, they'll win it all. So, you know, I think, I think they, a, a conservative party, a national conservative party that is seriously conservative does have the populist tinge to it, doesn't have to lose Ontario necessarily. Uh, I think they're, they're doing their level best in the leadership campaign right now <laughs> to, to undermine their appeal downstream. And it's particularly striking that they're doing so because in many ways, on paper, Pierre Polyev is the guy. You know, he has actually he much of the, be. many of the characteristics. He's not a social conservative. He doesn't play xenophobic cards. Uh, I think he's overplaying the cards that he is playing. But in many ways, his appeal 
is a lot like Doug Ford's, except that he's injected a notion, a degree of toxicity into his own party. Yeah, there seems to be little toxic about Doug Ford, if you put it that way. He's sort of the eternal optimist. It's interesting to note how many uh, ridings that the conservatives in uh, progressive conservatives won last night that voted for the liberals in the federal election. Uh, when we come back, we are going to talk a bit more about that federal conservative leadership race. As I mentioned, uh, candidates have until 11.59 Eastern to sign up memberships. So just about another hour and 45 minutes to go. And uh, we'll get, a, we'll get a, an opinion on how that race has gone so far, where it'll go from here after this. Richard Johnston, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of British Columbia, is our guest this half hour. We were talking about Doug Ford's win in Ontario last night and some of the, uh, some of the, what other party leaders, uh, conservative hopefuls, federal conservative leadership hopefuls could take away from, uh, from Doug Ford's big win, uh, in Ontario. So, uh, Professor Johnston, the, the membership drive is nearly over. I guess that means we'll stop seeing all those tweets about it, thankfully. Um, it's Pierre Polyev's 43rd birthday today, and he was still saying his second biggest birthday wish is for people to buy a membership. So you know how important it is. Uh, what do you make so far of the membership drive, and why, does it, why is it so important in this race? Well, it's everything uh, in the sense that, you know, it's a universal party ballot. Uh, I would look at... Um, be interested to see how the membership distributes, distributes across constituencies, because remember, constituencies will be weighted equally in this. So right. uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't suffice just to have more members than everybody else. You have to have more members in more places. Uh, right. And my, my hunch is that it's still probably Polyera's race to lose. I think it's pretty much a given that he will lose ground over the coming weeks and months. That's just the way it is, that you, know, you, you get sort of a coverage bonus uh, because you're the new thing and people focus on the positives initially. But inevitably, over time, other candidates start coming up with reasons not to vote for the front runner, And the media, uh, seeking to sort of separate themselves from the propaganda, start looking for uh, issues with the front runner as well. And so I, I should think it will narrow over the coming weeks. But I would be shocked if any of the alternatives to Polyevra could really put together a coalition that could block his leadership. Yeah, I, the one person who seems to be at least making a lot of noise about how many members he signed up is Patrick Brown, who claims to have signed up 150,000. Uh, as you mentioned, if they're all in Brampton, it doesn't really matter. But right. um, he signed up a lot of people. Overall, though, the Conservative Party, we don't know the exact numbers yet, but they're saying that there's been uh, some 400,000 memberships uh, that have been agreed. That's a big jump from, from the last time around. So it could make it a pretty interesting and competitive race, perhaps if it goes to a second second ballot, for instance. Yeah, I mean... Or maybe. Or maybe. I mean, the fact is that, aside from the Liberals in, in 2013, most of the of the leadership races in, in recent memory have been pretty close, as a matter of fact. Um, that the, the, the parties are, but especially the Conservative Party, are quite internally divided over, in some sense, existentially what they are and what they want to be. I don't have the sense, though, that people who represent the older brand of conservative have the jam, have the people on the ground, uh, unless they are being very strategic about how they marshal their resources and whether they can get uh, enough people into the broad mass of writings that would be, say, relatively low membership writings. 
So what happens now? The memberships are sold. Uh, the ballots will go out, we presume, in July. We'll know who's won in September. Uh, what do the candidates get up to between now and the time that those ballots go up or go out? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I think there's two things. I mean, first of all, it's, it's now more of a persuasion exercise than it was until now. At the, at the moment, in some sense, it's primarily a mobilization exercise, getting people signed up in the first place. So if it's persuasion, it's persuasion in a very broad mass of potential supporters. But now that the, now that the membership is about to close, you're going to have to start making converts. Or the other possibility, and we, again, don't know how enthusiasm distributes itself across the spectrum, uh, but... If, for example, Mr. Polyev has actually signed up the bulk of the new members, if many of them are kind of accidental members, not terribly enthusiastic, or they've been brought in by, let's say, brokers of some form or another, they might not actually cast their ballots. Frankly, I, I, that strikes me as an unlikely characterization of the kind of people who are signing up to support him. But that's where we're at. Either, you know... The, you have to be sure that your own folks, however many they are, turn out. But at this point, I think uh, leadership candidates are going to have to start more and more trying to persuade the persuadable in the larger ranks of the party. It'll be interesting to see, for example, if Polyev backs off a little bit on the intensity of his populist appeals, uh, particularly looking forward beyond the leadership convention, because he, he has basically enabled his opponents inside the party to write the script for campaign advertisements against him by the liberals and new democrats next time around that's a problem and he needs to i think he needs to start countering that now we have about a minute left do you see any attrition between now and the time the ballots go out are we going to see anyone drop off if they just haven't signed up enough members and know they don't really stand a hope to win um i think it depends on their taste for combat i mean in some sense now is not the time to drop off. I mean, you might you might see some amount of negotiation between now and then, but to the extent that people have paid money, obviously these things are anonymous at some level, but to the extent that people have paid money and taken the trouble to join the party in the interest of a particular candidate, that candidate can't assume that somehow or another his or her supporters are automatically transferable to whichever of the of the remaining alternatives the candidate would like them to go to. So I think that this that because it's a secret ballot and all, I think that you're better off if you want to have influence down the road, you're better off staying in the race. Obviously if you have no resources, if you just nobody's going to, you know, you've got no money, you've got no time, then you have to think about it. But tactically speaking, you really want to stay in the race. Pretty much down. It's going to, be an, going to be an interesting summer. Richard Johnston, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Well, it's day two, or was today. We're almost into day three, I'm sure, of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations in Britain. The monarch herself, of course, was absent this morning uh, from the Thanksgiving service at St. Paul's in London. The 96-year-old skipped the event at St. Paul's Cathedral due to what was called mobility issues. The Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, lamented the Queen's absence today. Your Majesty, we are sorry that you're not here with us this morning. But we are so glad that you are still in the saddle. And we are glad that there is still 
more to come. So thank you for staying the course. Well, the palace says the Queen was forced to step back after experiencing discomfort following yesterday's celebration events. She watched the service this morning instead on TV. But this royal watcher says she fears for the Queen's health. I mean, she's a really good age, isn't she? And she's been marvellous. But you can see a deterioration in her. So I just hope she can have some bit of quality life, really. Queen Elizabeth will not be attending Saturday's 243rd Epsom Derby, uh, marking uh, the second Platinum Jubilee event she's had to pull out of because of those mobility issues. Uh, she, Pilots again confirmed that she'll be watching uh, the event on TV at Windsor Castle. Again, over the past while, mobility issues have forced the Queen to miss several public events uh, with Prince Charles and other members of the royal family taking her place. And in many ways, it is a bit of a glimpse into the future for Britain's monarchy. Even as Britain celebrates the Queen's 70 years, questions abound about what comes next for the House of Windsor and for Britain. Or as one author put it, quote, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee is giving Britain's four four days off to reflect on how much their country has changed in 70 years and how little they agree about where it should go next. Well, joining me now is said author from London is Tom Rachman. He's a Canadian-British writer based in England whose novels include The Imperfectionists, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, The Italian Teacher, and the upcoming The Imposters. Tom Rachman, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I was there for the Diamond Jubilee 10 years ago, and it is a pretty impressive uh, celebration, I found, at least in, in, in the London area, because there isn't really a, a Canada Day in England. There isn't really a Independence Day in England, obviously. Uh, what's the mood like? What's the mood been like this time around? Well, the mood these days is, is harder to gauge than ever in this post-COVID or COVID era, because everybody's sort of displaced and uh, some people are still stuck at home. But this is a day where these past few days of the Jubilee celebrations have been days where it's actually probably better to be stuck at home than be trying than be trying to to cross London because there are events everywhere where there aren't events there are traffic problems so um, it's it's been pretty crazy I think you have the the country is probably split among um, a a small number of people let's say a minority who are wildly enthused about it and then a minority who are bitterly opposed to it. And then probably a, uh, a majority of people who like the idea of a nice celebration and they'll go along with it if they can and aren't too bothered one way or the other. It is the first Jubilee celebration since the Scottish referendum, uh, since Brexit. Uh, how, how has that impacted sort of the spirit of the nation? Because again, it felt like the Jubilee celebrations, as much as they are you know, a celebration of the Queen, who still remains popular. They did feel sort of like a celebration of Britain, or at least England, on the day of. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, I think that you, you might imagine that a situation like this, because it's about the Queen and it's not about politics directly, that it would be an opportunity for the country to unite. But if you look at the polls, it actually shows that people are a little less enthused about the monarchy than they ever have been. And more generally, there is a sense around Britain of bitterness, I would say. Uh, It's part of that bitterness I think you can experience in probably in many other countries of the West at the moment for lots of different reasons. But in this country, one of the core issues is, of course, Brexit. So the 2016 referendum that took place here, uh, not only split Britain from its allies in Europe, in the European Union, it very profoundly split 
Britons themselves, um, the vote was 52 to 48. And I would say that um, to this day, the, the country is, is bitterly divided. And those sorts of loyalties of whether you were for remain or for leave um, continue to, to um, hold a great deal of power over people and uh, polarize the nation. More generally, we're really starting to feel the effects of Brexit. Um, prices are going up and the, the, uh, the economy is stagnating much more than other equivalent economies. So it's, uh, it's, there's also masses of new red tape and problems small and large with dealing with our closest neighbors here. So it's not been a very good period for, for British politics. It's not been a good period for the people. And the whole sense of British identity on, on top of that has, I would say, been clouded and complicated a great deal um, also by the fact that over the past years, there's been a greater concern with the history of Britain, the history of empire and um, recriminations and concerns about what uh, Britain in its past did in the name of empire building and how many people it harmed and, and how many countries it, it colonized and sometimes with a great deal of brutality. And so the question of quite what Britain is anymore is not such an obvious thing for people. They can't easily um, uh, hug onto that. And uh, for that reason, the view of the Queen herself is sometimes a little bit more diffident than you would imagine. Yeah, because I mean, the monarchy was always sort of the safety valve, right? I mean, I felt that way when it came in England that, uh, and this was not always true. Obviously, the 90s was a difficult time for the royal family. Uh, but certainly in, in this century, the, the monarchy sort of provided a safety valve for some of the other issues going on uh, in British politics and, and in British society more broadly. It feels like that that isn't quite the case, as you've mentioned, that isn't quite the case this time. In other words, because of also the passing of Prince Philip as well, uh, the Queen's husband, it feels a bit somber this time around, like somehow this is the end of an era, um, without putting too fine a point on it. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, nobody can deny that uh, the Queen is 96 years old. And, um, and you can't imagine that she's going to have many more jubilees. And she is um, clearly in failing health. Uh, I wouldn't say that her life is in peril to anybody, to my knowledge, certainly it's, it's not the case, but she's, um, she's actually extraordinarily hearty and hale for somebody of 96 years old, but time does take its toll. And she has lately had um, suffered from uh, physical ailments and her mobility is hampered. So there was a big celebration today at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, and she was unable to attend that though the rest of the royal family did. And in a way, the scene that you see unfolding there gives a little insight into, into some of the problems that the royal family is facing, that she is in the twilight of her, of her reign. And those royals who turned up for that celebration at the cathedral were not figures who have the same sort of place in the, in the national identity uh, and certainly don't don't enjoy the same sort of affection that she does. So, for example, Prince Charles, who is a, is has never been a particularly popular figure, quite aside from the troubles that he had with Diana. He's always been a, a slightly stiff and awkward man in public, and um, the the people have failed to to really warm to him, and the tabloid newspapers haven't helped. And then you have the next generation. Um, Prince William is relatively popular at the moment, uh, but there have been an awful lot of troubles with Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, that have, have had, both of them have questioned the, the royal family and made an, an accusation of racism against a member of the royal family who was not, who was not named. 
Um, so I think that when the public are looking at what's going to come next, it's not such an easy picture, not one that is easy to to love. And also, quite aside from the particular characters of, uh, who are going to be coming in these next generations, it's also the fact that the Queen and the monarchy is supposed to represent stability. And the Queen represents a connection with um, with the really with the Blitz years, which continue to be the period that Britain is proudest of when the British people really stuck together and they fought against an indisputably um, evil, uh, indisputable evil that they helped to, to defeat. And that's a moment of such national pride that the British people are very frequently looking back on that um, with affection. And, uh, and she was a figure who was, who was there. She wasn't yet the queen, but she was uh, princess Elizabeth at that point. And, and she actually suffered a bombing at Buckingham palace and, so she was with the people then and therefore is still seen as a connection with a, with a period when Britain felt more sure of itself in the world. Um, so I think that people have given her more latitude. Once she's gone, the next generations will be viewed on a completely different terms, 21st century terms, where there's social media and you're expected to, to take stands and take positions. And I think it's going to be a great deal harder for them. I'm speaking with Tom Rockman, a Canadian-British author based in England, whose novels include The Imperfectionists. Uh, upcoming is The Impostors. We're talking about the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, uh, what the mood is like in London. Some of the challenges, of course, facing uh, the royal family with the passing this year of Prince Philip, uh, the Queen, of course, getting older, 96 this year. And and also some of the challenges we've seen of late, uh, particularly on trips to the Caribbean for uh, Prince William and Kate, uh, the recent trip to Canada by Prince Charles and Camilla. Uh, some of the past is coming back now and questions are being asked. We'll get to that after this. I'm speaking with Tom Rockman, a Canadian-British author based in England, uh, whose novels you may know include The Imperfectionists, uh, The Italian Teacher, and The Upcoming Imposters. Uh, we've been talking about the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and just some of the, the atmosphere surrounding it. It's certainly from what we see from this side of, uh, of the Atlantic, it is quite celebratory, but it also masks uh, some deep divides in British society these days. Uh, and uh, those used to be what the monarchy was best at, uh, at uniting, at best at fixing, bringing the, the country together, bringing Britain together. Together. At this point, though, that is a harder task. You mentioned it at, in in the first part of the interview, uh, but it, it's been a difficult year. That you know, the idea of of the sun never sets on the British Empire is now starting to be questioned. I mean, starting the, the history is starting to be questioned. We saw that certainly uh, with uh, Prince William and Kate's disastrous trip to the Caribbean, uh, and to some extent, we also saw it with Prince Charles and Camilla when they were here just recently, again to mark the Platinum Jubilee. How is that being seen in Britain? Yeah, I, I think that the the view from here is that um, it is not it's not a great deal clearer than it is anywhere else. Insofar as people feel very conflicted about this, um, I think there are people who still want to just feel proud of their country and of its grand history, and there are others who are looking at that history with greater scrutiny and feel ashamed even, uh, or at least disturbed by elements of what the British Empire was involved in and, and what its, its soldiers and officials did in the name of, uh, of Britain. So it's a much more ambivalent view of the past uh, than has ever been the case um, before, I think. You know, the, the, the loss of the empire um, that, that really sort of took full force after the Second World War is something that Britain st still struggles to really digest. And um, I think that 
uh, it realizes that it's not a superpower like the United States. Uh, but at the same time, I, it still has some pretensions to, to being a really great and important power. And in some respects, it, it, I think it's, it's a, still a kind of overachiever, relatively small island in the, in the North Sea. Um, but at the same time, it is not what it once was. And what it once was is not what it once was either, insofar as we're now all looking at it with a much, I think, uh, much more clear and honest eye and one that is, um, is painful. And it's not just, it's, it's different because in the past, the British citizens would have been the ones who, let's say, were on the, the colonial side. So either they wouldn't have been aware of some of the, 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 the terrible brutality that was going on in the colonies, or they would have been aware and perhaps would have condoned it. But it's not that way. It's not so simple anymore because millions and millions of um, people who were on the other side of that equation, people who were actually colonized, are now citizens of Britain and are as British as anybody else. And therefore the entire nature of what it is to be British is a great deal more complex and ambivalent. Uh, there was a, um, an excellent uh, book that came out, uh, I believe last year by a, a British writer called uh, Satnam Sanghera called Empire Land, how imperialism has shaped modern Britain. And what he's really calling for is he's calling for uh, this country to look more honestly and directly at the past. And uh, Sanghera himself, was raised in England, is the son of Punjabi immigrants, and he considers himself British just as much as anybody else here. And he also takes pride in the in some of the British achievements of the past, and that includes many elements of empire. Equally, he's appalled by many of the things that, that uh, the empire did. So I think that his point and that of, of more and more people is that it's time for Britain to really absorb its past and look more honestly and fully at what happened and try to reckon with it. Uh, and I think that in a way, part of the failure to do that is a little bit, um, ha- had something to do with the Brexit itself, because that was a kind of spasm of, of post-empire nationalism in many ways. It was a wish to regain the past, to make Britain great again in a way that frankly didn't match up with the reality of the globe today. You've mentioned this in an op-ed that you've written for the Globe and Mail but the Queen has been uh, remarkable at being apolitical for all these years, uh, really being someone whose opinions you couldn't know, wouldn't know, things that weren't shared, uh, mostly. Uh, you you posit that that the monarchy can't be that post-Queen Elizabeth, that it will not work. Uh, and that's going to be a real challenge for, for the monarchy to, to find where it belongs in modern Britain. Yeah, that's right. Um, I... I... I think that uh, it's been said of the British monarchs that there isn't a job description that if you are the king or the queen, then you need to adapt to the time that you're in because no uh, no reign is going to be the same as any other in a different period. And um, it is the, the, the case that the monarchy in Britain, the monarch in Britain is not really supposed to have any political opinions or not supposed to state them. It's part of the constitutional agreement here. There's Britain has a very odd setup in that there is no written constitution, so no single document. It's just the accumulation of years and centuries, I should say, of different um, acts of parliament and traditions and so forth. And they're all sort of they're referred to as the constitution. And part of it was that when um, absolute power was taken away from the, the monarch uh, over the centuries, that, that monarch eventually became just a, a ceremonial position. Uh, still significant, still had sway, but 
was allowed to stay there in those beautiful palaces with the lovely crowns, so long as she or he didn't barge into politics. Now, the queen has has kept out of politics with um, great fidelity. She's extremely cautious. And in fact, it's hard to know if she stands for anything at all most of the time, because she won't talk on even pretty uh, clear issues, pretty important issues for the, the future of the nation. I'm not so sure that's going to be possible in the future. I just don't know anymore whether somebody who is in their in their um, 30s, in their 40s, in this day and age, with this kind of constant uh, attention and sometimes uh, pitiless um, scrutiny that comes from social media, that, that it will be acceptable just to say, I'm not going to mention it, I'm not going to talk about it. If, for example, it's an issue of responsibility for slavery, uh, reparations that um, Britain is now being pressed to pay, um, particularly by Caribbean nations. Uh, many of them are now looking to break from Britain and no longer have the monarch as, it, as their, their head of state. And part of that is linked to this idea that, that Britain needs to somehow come to terms with its past and apologize and probably pay too. Now, is that a political issue? Uh, that's debatable, but the the royals have tended to be circumspect about about diving into that, um, not just because they could be seen to represent a view that the, the British government doesn't endorse on something like paying a large, large amount um, of public funds, but also because the royals themselves uh, have a history in this. The, the, the royal family's ancestors were themselves, uh, starting with Elizabeth I, endorsed um, the first uh, slave English slave traders trip, and subsequent uh, monarchs even uh, profited from this trade. So it's a very, very tricky for them, and I don't think that they're going to be able to just um, stay quiet on this in the future and on many other issues. So I think that the this sort of peace and and uh, love that the Queen enjoys is is likely to be eclipsed by a much more stormy future for this this family. Tom Rockman, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Well, it was a grim milestone today, 100 days since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Imagine 100 days with no end in sight. Take a moment to remember that a lot of people around the world thought, a lot of experts thought, that this war would end quickly, that Russia would win quickly. And they have not. And that's credit to the to Ukraine, credit to Ukrainians, both there and around the world for the support that they've offered each other and the courage and bravery uh, that they've shown uh, on the battlefield as well. Still, I mean, the cost, tens of thousands of civilians and soldiers likely killed, millions forced to flee the country or internally displaced, factories, hospitals, bridges, schools, and residences destroyed. Ukraine says about 35% of its gross domestic product has been wiped out. And Western sanctions, of course, have targeted Russian oil and natural gas exports. The economic ripples of that are being felt around the world of the war too. But it's also having impact on other things, things that were normal course of business in Ukraine before this all happened. And one of those was surrogacy. If you didn't know, Ukraine has long been an international surrogacy hub. Uh, it marketed it benefits, including the legal recognition of intended parents as legal parents for surrogacy, no legal rights really for surrogates, anonymous egg donors, no age limit for embryo implementation, no limit on the number of embryos that can be implanted and long-term embryo storage, as well as English-speaking clinics in the country. 
So what impact has the war had on the women in Ukraine acting as surrogates, as the couples who've hired them, and in some cases, the children born into war with no place to call home? Well, joining me now is Anna Fagenbaum. She's a professor in digital storytelling at Bournemouth University in Britain and the author of the forthcoming book, Fertile Fortunes, IVF and the Business of Baby Making. Uh, thank you for your time tonight. No problem. Thank you for having me. Um, I don't think many listeners would know that Ukraine has, is one of the sort of the world's centers of surrogacy. Uh, why is it one of the places where it really does thrive as an industry? So there's a few global factors that kind of led to the rise of the Ukraine um, as a hub for surrogacy. Um, one of the biggest ones was that the kind of former hubs in Thailand and India um, and a few other places globally um, had been shut down in around 2015 uh, because of, there was a lot of controversy over those industries, largely because it was foreigners, um, mainly kind of white and Western foreigners that were coming in um, using surrogates and, and then leaving and the ways that the surrogates there were treated. And in particular, and importantly, the way that the kinds of agents um, that, that did the matching and that organized the labor of the surrogates uh, were quite exploitative and the working conditions were quite poor. A number of documentaries were made on this. A lot of newspapers did reports and it became kind of easiest rather than trying to fix those industries to just put bans on foreigners having surrogacy done in those countries. And so this left a kind of gap in the market um, for particularly foreigners um, and Westerners uh, where they, they needed surrogates that were no longer being provided by these other countries that had been hubs for a long time. Uh, Ukraine didn't have legislation against surrogacy, so it was a place where it was legal. Um, and in addition to this, you know, Ukraine had a has somewhat suffering economy, um, but it also had the benefit in the eyes of, of white Western people that wanted to have white babies, that the surrogates were, were white. There were a lot of white egg donors and uh, made it feel, as we've seen in the way the refugee crisis has played out, there was this sense in which it was uh, closer to, to home. There was more of this sort of um, genetic match, even though often there's not really one. Uh, and so it, it was very easy for Ukrainian surrogates and Ukrainian egg donors to be marketed to these Western markets. Uh, you know, with these kind of blonde, blue-eyed, young uh, women. I imagine too, I mean, Ukraine, I've been there. I mean, the, the medical system is relatively good. Uh, there are some benefits there overall, just for, from that aspect. And I imagine, I gather Russia and Georgia were other areas too that were uh, that were popular. It, it's huge business, isn't it, Anna, for, for those, who, uh, those who are looking for surrogates? Yes. And I, that, that, uh, not only is the healthcare good, but it's also more affordable. And often you're getting the same, if not better quality, and certainly more attention when you go in as a private user of some of the services there. Um, it's a little bit complicated what services you get done in your home country and then what happens um, in, in that country. But you want your surrogate to be well looked after. And so if you have a really good medical establishment, then you um, you know, you, you feel like you're in safer hands. Uh, and this this was also the case in, 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 in Russia and Georgia. And also, you know, Thailand also has a, an incredible you know, health system. Clearly, a war in, in, in any country is going to be disruptive. But if you have women, you have surrogates in that country at the time, what kind of impact has this had? And what is it exposed about this whole industry? So yeah, the impacts have been sort of threefold. We've got the question of what happens to surrogates. So 
um, to people who are already uh, carrying someone's child, whether that is in early stages or late stages, and obviously depending on the stage, it's slightly different. Then you've got what happens to to the, the the fetuses, the intended babies, and then you've got what happens to what are called the intended parents, so the the, the people who will uh, adopt and and who, who have contracted the surrogate and who will who will adopt the baby, um, or who, whose baby it is. It's kind of contractually difficult, the terminology. Um, so for surrogates, if they were in a place and they needed to evacuate, if they were early in their pregnancy, they had to think about things like, you know, where's their medical care going to come from? Um, who's going to look after them? Are they going to be able to get their payments? Are they going to be able to, to, you know, have all of their needs met? Because often surrogates are put up in, in flats or they're looked after, they have regular checkups. So all of these things, of course, are disrupted in a war zone. If you have a surrogate who's later term, who's going to deliver soon, then of course you have uh, the question of where are they going to deliver the baby? Where is the care going to be provided? And then going into the babies, what's going to happen after the baby is delivered. So the way that the law works in the Ukraine, uh, it's kind of near, near immediate that the intended parents become the parents. But if the parents aren't there, you enter a little bit of, of, an, of a kind of um, abyss uh, where it, it, the, the surrogate is not the parent legally of the baby, but the intended parents aren't there to go through the process of, of claiming or taking home their baby. And so you, you have these babies who are, are sort of lost in contractual mess uh, as well as being you know, stuck inside of a, a war zone. And we actually saw some very harrowing images of uh, entire sort of maternity units being moved into bomb shelters. And then for intended parent parents, you've got, as, as lots of people are trying to flee, you have sets of foreigners who are trying to, to enter or at least to get to the borders so that they can finish off these arrangements and they can take home these babies that they you know, have been waiting for, uh, not just for the time of the term, which is important for understanding why people choose surrogacy. Often people who go end up going for the option of surrogacy have been trying to have a baby for three five, 10 years. And so these are sometimes people who, you know, when we see these news stories and it seems very desperate, that's because they've spent huge, huge years of their lives, lots and lots of, of money, time, emotional distress, trying to even just get to this point where they could be parents. Does this leave the women in Ukraine at this point, in some senses, not in control of their own bodies in the middle of a war zone, not control in full control of their own decisions in the middle of a war zone? Uh, there's been sort of mixed stories on how much agency surrogates have had. Um, uh, the, where there becomes a conflict is when the um, so that so whatever the kind of agency is that is arranging the contract has a disagreement with what the surrogate wants to do and where they want to be. So sometimes surrogates have wanted to um, stay where their family is, um, even though that that might be risky. Sometimes they've wanted to flee, but not necessarily to the place where either the agents or the intended parents want them to flee because they want to go where their networks are. They want to go where they have, you know, where they have family and support. Uh, and so you can, there's been these situations where the, that, that conflict or that disagreement um, has to be resolved. Um, it, it seems to me from what I uh, have read from people who are working much more closely on the ground with this, that, um, it, that, that they're trying to, to do things that are in surrogate's best interest, that there are efforts being made to um, try and have that trump. But even if the surrogate ends up 
kind of getting to make the decisions or do the things that she wants, she might be breaking contract and therefore might um, suffer kind of financial consequences. Or if she decides to leave or go to a place where it's not going to be easy for the baby to be um, given or handed over whatever to the intended parents, then what happens to the, to the baby and what happens to her relationship with that baby? Uh, and this, this is very, very complicated, right? Emotionally, physically, uh, and contractually. I'm speaking with Anna Feigenbaum. She's a professor in digital storytelling at Bournemouth University and author of the forthcoming book, Fertile Fortunes, IVF and the Business of Baby Making. We're talking about Ukraine, which had become a hub for surrogacy worldwide for a number of reasons, and the impact of the war in that country uh, on that entire uh, industry. When we come back, um, uh, Anna has just written an op-ed for the Global Mail that talks a bit about the broader implications of this and, and how it might be an opportunity for reform within this uh, very lucrative, but again, as she's pointed out, uh, in this situation, a very complicated affair. We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Anna Fagenbaum. She's a professor in digital storytelling at Bournemouth University in the UK, author of the forthcoming book, Fertile Fortunes, IVF and the Business of Baby Making. Uh, we've been discussing surrogacy and Ukraine. Ukraine had become one of the world's hubs for surrogacy in, in recent times due to a number of reasons, bans in other countries that had been hubs in the past, and just what impact the war is having, how complicated it's been, certainly for uh, for women who are, who are already under contract as surrogates who are in the country. Um, and just for Canadian listeners, there are some different rules that apply to those looking for surrogates uh, uh, that make that 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 are different from country to country. And Canada is a bit particular that way. Yeah. So in Canada, you, you have um, what is allowed is is a kind of benevolent surrogacy, so expenses can be covered, but there and and contracts are are, are made in those situations. But it's not a paid form of labor in the way that we would think of a normal job, um, and and this comes with you know, pluses and minuses, depending on who you are talking to. Um, at, at, whereas in, in the Ukraine, and as well as in the United States, um, it is legal and it is a, a, a paid um, gig. It's, it's a, a job to be right. a surrogate. Um, it's much more expensive in the United States, which is one of, one of the other reasons why people go to, to the Ukraine rather than going to the U.S. So lots of Canadians um, will do surrogacy in the U.S., uh, because there's a much higher, because it's paid, there's a much higher, you know, supplier. There's many more people doing the job of being surrogates than there than there is in Canada because of those different arrangements. So, what do you think this entire um, this you know? I was reading an article in the New York Times recently, of course, where agencies didn't think the war was coming, like a lot of Ukrainians weren't sure that there was going to be an invasion this time around, uh, were telling prospective couples that everything was okay uh, with their surrogates and so on. What sort of what is this exposed about this industry and, and what might need to be done to, to fix some of the issues? Yeah, well, one of the things, um, Alison Matlock, who's doing this, these wonderful dispatches uh, from the UK and surrogacy reports, um, and one of the things that we were talking about is how actually we had just had COVID and COVID also stranded uh, surrogates and stranded babies. It didn't have the same kinds of threats, level of threats to well-being as war does. But these agencies have only just gone through this on a global scale of knowing that this can happen, of knowing that surrogates can be stranded from medical care, can be stranded from the intended parents that be born in this kind of limbo state because intended parents can't come in to go through the process of becoming the parents of the babies. So it's not like the industry doesn't know that this is a possibility. 
And there had been previous natural disasters uh, or climate change disasters, how we look at it, um, that had left similar kinds of situations where, uh, where, where intended parents were not able to enter a country and surrogates were not going to keep the babies. Where, so the babies got stranded. So we know in this industry that this can happen. Um, it is obviously very, very expensive to try and um, safeguard against all of these all of these kinds of things and because there hasn't been a kind of legal or a regulatory response it's a bunch of companies and these are for-profit companies um, trying to figure out what the best thing to do is right and so generally the thing that is is you know going to save the most money is is the way that things are going to work and this is this is one of the major pro- problems on a broader scale of having these industries be so uh, driven by by profit. Uh, and so a regulatory response would would need to do, I think, um, kind of three things. And the first is to really see surrogacy as labor and to then treat it uh, as we would um, protect other people's kinds of rights in a job and other people's agency in a job so that we we might even see something like surrogates unions uh, so that, that there's a more agency and autonomy and recognition of labor as work. And I'm sure anybody um, who has, has carried a child knows that labor is work. Um, and that you uh, also need uh, to have rights for intended parents confirmed earlier. So this this kind of idea from the olden times, where like you have to physically be present to be able to do certain kinds of control processes, and we're already seeing that shift a little post pandemic, or if we're post, um, that we then that that we can do this in other ways, right? We can we can we can use other kinds of systems for making sure that attended parents are the the actual parents without having to kind of physically be in the same space. And so we need to think through, I think, the way that those kinds of transitions happen. But of course, with that, if the intended parents can't physically be there to be with a baby because of a situation that's left them stranded, then we also thirdly need arrangements so that babies don't end up left in limbo. Uh, and right now, those arrangements have been, from my understanding, quite ad hoc. So a lot of times actually staying in, in maternity wards or staying with um, people that work for these these agencies, these brokers. Uh, and so that's something that that actually a, a kind of safeguarding could be put in place around that. I mean, obviously, these kinds of situations would never be ideal and would always be probably pretty traumatic for everybody involved. But we could definitely have uh, more regulatory systems that exist outside of this for-profit model, or at least that, that work in tandem with it, uh, to, to, to make sure that, that rights are protected for everybody that needs those protections. Anna, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, this next one is personal for me. Uh, You may know because I've talked about it. I grew up in Montreal. My parents are so-called Anglophones. I grew up in the 70s, so I went to French school as a kid. Learned to speak French when I was very young. Grew up in sort of a mixed neighborhood. um, And was always quite proud to speak French. Quite happy to live in Quebec, to be frank. But always really angry when the... Anglophone minority in the province, including people like my grandmother, were sort of left on the outside, cast aside by language laws, language laws that were that felt unnecessarily cruel to the English-speaking minority, regardless of the history of, uh, of that relationship in that province. Well, this week, Quebec adopted new legislation to further bolster and protect the French language. Um, it got royal assent and was passed into law at the provincial legislature uh, by the governing Coalition Avenir Quebec. 
The new law, again, adopted last week, overhauls part of that landmark French-language charter, Bill 101, adopted in 1977. It includes extensive measures to strengthen the language in education, business, and healthcare sectors. It's not entirely clear what it actually does to promote French. It's pretty clear what it does to mute other languages. Bill 96 has been widely criticized by Anglophones, the Indigenous and immigrant groups, uh, over concerns that it goes too far by threatening access to healthcare, education, justice, and other government services in English. Premier Francois Legault, though, stands by uh, his legislation, describing it as moderate. What I'm trying to do is to make sure that we protect the future of French as a common language. That's what, it. What are you referring That's to it. when you speak about home? People have home. But it's an indicator. Because the French language charter has never dealt with would language you, spoken at Would you at agree with me, Phil, that if in 50 years from now, nobody is speaking French at home, that the future of French would be good? Do you agree with that? Yes, but can the government no. so really expect to control, to control Thank you, that? merci tout le monde. Thank you. Merci tout le monde. That was an exchange with Phil Otier of the Montreal Gazette. Uh, the very idea that no one would speak French at home in Quebec in 50 years is so ridiculous. 90% of people in Quebec speak French. The idea, he, at one point, the premier compared it to Louisiana, where about 2% of people speak French. The language, of course, was completely eradicated. It makes you wonder what the whole point of this is. Well, the fact is that it is essentially, like most things, about politics. Uh, and Legault is using the nonwithstanding clause as, in an omnibus way uh, as a get-out-of-jail-free card on this one, preemptively to top it all off. So if this is about politics, it's because it's popular in many parts of Quebec where uh, Francois Legault knows he needs to win seats in an upcoming election. Uh, and those areas of the province where the language they speak at home really isn't an issue. And who speaks English is even less of an issue because very few people around them do. Well, joining me now with more is Patrick Derry. He's a columnist, a public policy analyst, and an associate editor at Policy Options, and he joins us from near Montreal. Thank you for your time, Patrick. My pleasure. So tell me a bit about just the timing of this policy, because it, it sounds like a very wide, very broad and tough language law. And if you're sitting outside of Quebec, you wonder why now? Well, there are elections in a few months, so it's a good way to send a message at the base and at Quebecers in general. But uh, I'm not sure it's, um, it's as much a question of timing as a question of a uh, political agenda. There's a kind of logic in the steps that the CAC has taken since they came into power in 2018. And uh, we have to remember that in the campaign, they were talking about identity issues, notably uh, immigration. And then they passed the Bill 21, which uh, prohibits some uh, public servants, well, uh, judges, uh, police officers, amongst others, to wear religious symbol uh, in public. And then they moved on to the Bill 96 that essentially pushes, it's a reform of Bill 101, uh, but it pushes things further. And uh, there seems to be the kind of uh, ideological drive behind this because uh, when you look at the numbers, the situation, it's difficult to see uh, how it's justified. 
Yeah, because because if you look at the numbers, uh, specifically around immigration, which is really one of the big ones, and just even the English minority in the province, it seems like French is still in a pretty healthy situation. Uh, I, I know the premier this week uh, referred to the language disappearing in fifty years. Is is that is he telling the truth? Is it's legitimate in Quebec to have uh, some preoccupations about where the the state of uh, the French language will be going the next 100, 200 years. Uh, that's legitimate because we're, we're about 7 million French-speaking uh, uh, pe- people, uh, well, francophones, and other people who speak French in Quebec. But in Canada, it's altogether about 8 million people speaking French. Uh, and of course, we're, uh, there are about 400 million Anglophones in North America. But that being said, if you look at the general trend, right now, in Quebec, uh, there's about 94% of the population who are able to have a conversation in French, according to the data from the latest census from uh, Statistics Canada, 2016. So 94%, it's, it's pretty good. And you, you also have to remember that there has never been a period in all the history of Quebec where there were 100% people able to speak French in Quebec. This has never existed, of course, before because there were First Nations were there before the, the, the French came here. And then uh, the English came here, then the, the Irish, Italians, and so on. So 94%, well, the situation we have now, the proportion of a population who are able to, to have, hold a conversation in French has never been higher. So, and if you look back uh, about 45 years ago and at the end of the 70s, it was 89%. So it's going in the right direction. Of course, we'll never get to 100%, but it's not uh, as if it was going downward. And uh, as for uh, the comparison with uh, Louisiana that uh, Premier Legault made at the beginning of the week, saying that uh, in in about 50, 50 years, so, two generations, we could be looking at a Quebec that will look similar to Louisiana. <laughs> There's absolutely no way uh, that this can happen. And uh, just to give you a, a, f- a few numbers, I just mentioned that in Quebec, about 94% of the population is able to hold a conversation in French and uh, about uh, 80% are speaking it at home every day. Well, in Louisiana, you have about two or three percent of the population who are able to speak French. So it's not even in the same universe. And so, uh, there, there's no Bill 101 in Louisiana that mandates uh, immigrants to go to French school. It's, it was quite the opposite. A hundred years ago, Louisiana passed a law to prohibit uh, the teachings in French. So, <laughs> so it, it, it's a significant difference. I was going to say, Patrick, I mean, is it popular? Is it popular within within the most of Quebec? I know there's been a lot of opposition to it from certain groups, but overall, has this been well-received? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it is. Because you're touching something that is really uh, emotional. And uh, at some point, it's really, really difficult to have rational discussion about identity, whether it's uh, secularism, or whether it's the French language, uh, it's it's really sensitive in, in Quebec, and uh, really, really smart people. <laughs> at some point, they just 
they, they just don't care about facts. They just don't care about numbers. And it's made worse by the, what, the, the message sent by uh, the government. I'm, we were talking about, uh, I was mentioning Simon Jeanne-Barret, the Minister of the French Language. And just to give an example, he mentioned earlier this week that uh, about uh, 55%, only 55% of uh, immigrants coming to Quebec who don't speak either French or English, about 55% of them, them uh, move towards French. Um, so that's not false, but you are, it, it's only true if you include immigrants who came here before 1981. Right, so so, so like grand, someone's grandparents who did never yes, learn to speak French. So the, 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 exactly. So the, the the immigrants who came here before uh, the 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 Bill One Hundred One could could have its effects. Because if you look at the more recent numbers since okay. to uh, two thousand one, well, you have about over seventy five percent of immigrants eventually switching to French. So it's not. It's nowhere near what the the minister is uh, is saying, it's and and, and I, again, I'm talking about the data from Six Canada and by the Office Québécois de la langue française. So it's it's not it's, a, it's a, a partisan. It's it's not a, it's, a partisan. It's just, yeah, the the truth is not partisan. So we've established that it, it really isn't backed up by any real you know, uh, current threat to the French language. There'll always be a long-term existential threat to the French language in Quebec, but let, nothing to suggest it needs to be done right away. And certainly not at this, with this amount of, um, this amount of fervor. Uh, I'm speaking with Patrick Derry. He's a columnist and public policy analyst, associate editor at Policy Options. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about the negatives that could come from this. Uh, we know already that it does uh, violate the Charter of Human Rights, uh, the Charter of Rights in, in Canada, because they've had to use the notwithstanding clause. But what could be the downside for all this for uh, Francois Legault? And is this the beginnings of another move towards sovereignty? I think a lot of people outside of Quebec would be wondering that. That's next. I'm speaking with Patrick Derry. He's a columnist and public policy analyst uh, and associate editor at Policy Options. He's speaking to me tonight from Montreal. We're talking about Bill 96, a tough new language law that's come in, into effect in Quebec that really aims to try to make uh, push French back into predominance in public life, even though the stats don't really back up that it's under any immediate threat of being uh, pushed out of uh, a, a dominant spot in public life. Um, there's been a lot of backlash towards this, Patrick, from minority groups from outside the province as well. Uh, this is this is a dangerous balance that that uh, Francois Legault is trying to walk here because Quebec's international reputation, its ability to attract immigrants, it's all on the line if Quebec is seen to be an intolerant place. I agree with you, but I don't think it's a concern of Premier Legault right now, and uh, well, he doesn't care, uh, or he doesn't see it, or he doesn't want to see it. I have, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have no better answer to that because uh, Quebec prospered on this uh, openness. Uh, at the end of the 70s, there were some English people who uh, left because of the, when the Parti, Parti Québécois came into power. But those who stayed, uh, and most of them stayed, they accept that uh, the common language in Quebec has to be French. Uh, they're not against French. They just want to keep talking whatever second or third language they are they are speaking with it's perfectly normal like uh, french speaking people in uh, saint boniface in uh, yeah, manitoba in other, in other parts of the country i mean i guess the problem here is that the minority linguistic rights within the province are being i mean they're not going to have access to the services that they perhaps i mean at least under 
under our laws the the ones that they're entitled to. Yeah, and a, a strange justification for that is that uh, in other parts of Canada it's even worse. So it's a really weird way of uh, justifying that, and also because some provinces, namely uh, Ontario, is moving in the opposite direction. I.e., uh, extending the services in French, but here, in, for example, you have the the, the Bill 96 prohibits the, the the condition that a judge in certain parts of Quebec has to be bilingual. Uh, right. This has never been an issue before under the Parti Québécois, for, for instance, because uh, on the South Shore and North Shore on, of Montreal. Mm-hmm. There are people speaking English and who end up before a judge from time to time. And in a court of justice, uh, it's really important that you be able to explain yourself in your own language and that to be understood in your own language because nuances are really important. And that bill once uh, aims to remove that without absolutely no reason. It was it's a solution to a problem that did not exist. And we have many other issues with our justice system, namely access and uh, delays. And you, you don't have to pile up uh, on that. I mean, it feels and like we- there's, a, there's a lot in here that addresses issues that don't actually exist. Although, I mean, as you mentioned, it's popular. So, I mean, we know what we, for, for good reason, we know why it's being done. And I imagine there are some elements of it that are probably decent policy. Uh, the, the last, I mean, I think listeners outside of Quebec will really want to know if this is an ideological move between, you know, the banning of religious symbols, the reinforcement of French language laws, including the Office de la Langue Française, um, you know, the sign laws, so to speak. Are we heading back towards another sovereignty movement, towards another referendum? No, I don't think so. Because um, the, what the CAC, uh, the, the, the political genius of the CAC, if, if I can say, is that they basically took many of the positions on the, of the Parti Québécois, took them, in some cases, one step further. So, but we have to mention that the Parti Québécois right now uh, is different from the Parti Québécois 30 years ago and uh, right. is, is, in general, in the same space at the CAC on those issues. But without wanting to leave uh, Quebec. So you have uh, a federalist party that is very nationalist. And in the end, well, at the next election, they're likely to have, I don't know, somewhere between 40 and 45 percent of the vote, which in our system in Quebec, in the current state with the uh, opposition parties divided between four parties, roughly at 10 or 15, 20% of the vote, uh, the CAC is going to have possibly 100 uh, seats at the National Assembly out of 125. So it will be a total domination for the next four years. Uh, that, that's another issue because our electoral system is, bro- is broken. Not only in Quebec, we have similar problems in Ontario and the, the rest of the country, but right. the CAC came into power with only 37% of the vote. They were able to register a majority with that, and it is, it's the lowest tally of vote for a majority in all history of Quebec. And now they're gonna have somewhere above forty, a bit above forty percent, and they, they they're gonna have a total domination. So there's not gonna be any real opposition for the next four years, and that's also a problem. And well, clearly they found a magic formula. Uh, uh, if it involves perhaps trampling on minority rights, then then I guess it's popular, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily correct. Patrick Derry, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Well, in this hour, we're taking a good look at Bill 96. That's the new language law that was uh, given royal assent this week in Quebec. It really builds on Bill 101, if you remember that from back in the 70s, uh, which really sort of introduced protection of the French language in Quebec. It has been successful. Listen, let's be honest. It, it was uh, controversial at the time, but French has flourished in Quebec or continues to. Uh, nowadays, apparently about 94% of people who live in Quebec can carry on a conversation in French. But over the years, politics are around language has always been something in Quebec um, that parties can rely on. I mean, every province has its punching bag, whether it be Ottawa, if you're at West or in Quebec, it's often the English language minority. It's just the way it is. They, they tend to vote in a block. Um, they tend to vote for the same party uh, over and over again, the liberals federally and provincially. And for parties like the Coalition Avenir Québec, who are now in power, they don't have any seats in English-speaking neighborhoods. So it's easy for them to ignore minority language rights. This goes quite a bit farther than that, though. Um, and in fact, it does, you know, invoke the non-withstanding clause proactively in advance um, of the, so to shield it from charter challenges, in other words, because they know it violates the charter. So they're going to invoke the non-withstanding clause proactively. Uh, to make sure that uh, that it gets at a, a get out of jail free card, really, uh, so, and it you know overall what it targets is education, business, healthcare, a whole bunch of stuff. Now the prime minister, he's from Montreal. Uh, he speaks both languages, obviously. Uh, he says he's concerned about the effect of the bill on Quebec's English-speaking minority. Well, this week, former NDP leader and former provincial Liberal cabinet minister Tom Mulcair wrote that quote: "Unfortunately for all of us, Trudeau is so terrified of Legault that Ottawa is left play acting." Don't expect to see the same thing we saw after previous attacks on minority language rights, a strong federal government doing its job. Trudeau and Lametti, that's David Lametti, the justice minister, are hiding under their desks, close quote, says Tom Mulcair. Fair comment? Who knows? I don't think so. But fair comment? You know, obviously Tom Mulcair knows Quebec politics. Um, well, with more on the impact of Bill 96 and whether Ottawa should be doing more to fight it. Joining me now is Anthony Housefather. He's the Liberal member, member of Parliament for Mount Royal on the island of Montreal. He's also a lawyer. Uh, thanks so much for being here tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure, Ben. So for listeners who might not understand fully what the impact of Bill 96 is on Quebec's linguistic minorities, uh, and English speakers included, uh, what exactly does this lay out uh, and what kind of services does it retract? So that's a great question. In a sense, this bill misdirects its fire. French is always going to be vulnerable in North America because it's a minority language and it's vulnerable from international forces. It's not the English-speaking community in Quebec that is a threat to French. We're a very bilingual community. Almost 90% of our youth are bilingual. And all that they're seeking to do in Bill 96 really is take away services from English-speaking Quebecers. So let's start by saying that we've always been able to get our birth certificates, our marriage certificates, our death certificates in English. We can't anymore. As an attorney, I've always communicated with the Quebec Bar Association in English. After this law is passed, I won't be able to communicate with them in English anymore. They're going to have to only communicate with me in French. Um, if I want to sell my house to you, Ben, um, I would normally do the contract in English. And we would register it with the land office in English. Now the land office won't accept any English contracts to register. We will have to do it in French or translate it. When we want to go to court, if we own a company uh, or we're a nonprofit, they're telling us that now you have to file in French. Or if you file in English, you have to provide a certified copy in French. 
Um, they're telling businesses of 25 employees that they need to franchise before it's only been 50 employees. Um, and worse, the worst part of this bill, um, and there's a lot that's horrible, is that they're saying that in order to get services in English from the government of Quebec or municipalities, you need to be a historic English speaker. And that means to them, you need to have access to English schools in Quebec. The only people that have constitutional access to English schools are those who were educated in English by majority of their education in English in Canada, or their parents were educated with the majority of their education in English in Canada. So if I marry someone from Australia or the United States, um, and I want to bring them here, um, they're not getting served in English by the government after six months, because the, the immigrants can get served in English for six months, then it's got to be French. Um, so it, it, theoretically, you could think about it, I, and I'll use the example, one of my friends, Ariel, married a girl from Australia. Um, the, he has access to English schools, and he's perfectly bilingual. Their kids have access to English schools, and the kids are bilingual. But of course, she grew up in Australia. She doesn't speak French. And she's the only one in their family that now wouldn't be entitled to government services in English. But how does that work? If, I mean, a, a historical Anglophone. So say you call the city of Montreal, and this is an example that's been brought up and say, I've lost my recycling box and I don't speak French. I mean, do you have to carry around a card or do you have to wear a sign that says I'm a historical Anglo? I don't understand how that works. Well, we are all wondering. We're waiting to see how the Quebec government is going to do this because it's supposed to be done through regulation. Nobody has clearly explained how this crazy system is supposed to work. If I call somebody on the phone, how am I going to prove that I have the entitlement to services in English? Um, it, 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 it's a bizarre thing. And, and really, nobody has explained how that's going to happen yet. But it's certainly going to cause a lot of delays in terms of getting your services. And probably a lot of people, which is what they want, are just going to say, damn it, I'm just going to ask in French because I'm going to have to spend 20 minutes trying to prove that I have the right to services in English. One of the things that uh, people outside of Quebec are probably familiar with is the so-called language police, the Office de la Langue Française. Uh, this expands their powers as well in a way that, that doesn't quite jibe with living in a democracy, does it, in some ways? Well, so these powers have existed. Their power to enter into businesses and search phones to see if they're doing things properly in French and search computers, that's existed. The issue is that has always been subject to the constraints of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, and the right to be free of unreasonable search and seizure. Now, the Quebec government, which is another horrible part of the bill, um, decided that the Quebec Charter of Rights would no longer apply to the Charter of the French Language. So now the Charter of the French Language supersedes the Quebec Charter of Rights. And on the federal charter, where they can't just disregard it, they use the notwithstanding clause to say that none of the sections that are subject to the notwithstanding clause apply. And they did it preemptively in an omnibus way, which in my view is unconstitutional. So theoretically, for this period of time, until the courts rule on this, um, the Office de la Langue Française will not be subject to the rules on arbitrariness, and they can do whatever they want in terms of searching, searching and seizing. Is any of this based in, I mean, I, I heard uh, the premier this week talk about uh, sort of the Louisianification of Quebec, where French would disappear in 50 years. I gather only about 3% of people in Louisiana still speak French. I mean, even looking at num the number of, of immigrants in Quebec who speak French at home, it's very high for those who arrived in recent times, maybe not so much for those who arrived generations ago. Uh, yeah. But it seems like even the basis here isn't really in fact, it's in sentiment. 
A hundred percent. And 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 I think that there's a real uh, confusion here, right? The premier is now starting to ask about what language people speak at home or what their mother tongue is. That was never supposed to be part of the equation of how Quebec would be more French, right? French is supposed to be for them the the, the common language, um, which you know, or the official language, which I would say it's the official language. Um, and in public settings, you're supposed to have the courtesy of speaking French, making sure people are served in French, making sure you're speaking French to French speakers. Um, and that's understandable. Um, and so the goal then should be that everyone is able to carry on a conversation and everyone is able to write and everyone is able to communicate in French. If you're going to start asking what language people are speaking in their house and what their mother tongue is, then you're veering very, very far away from the question of whether this is a French-speaking province to what language your original language is or what language you're speaking in private life. And that, that's very problematic. Every statistic that I see shows that the number of Quebecers who can communicate in French continues to rise. It's now over 95%. The number of Quebecers who use French at work or in public spaces continues to rise. And the number of immigrants that acculturate into the French community, meaning that they use French as their predominant official language, continues to rise. So none of these things really are true. There is no danger of Quebec becoming Louisiana because Bill 96 is not adopted. And this, of course, uh, just so listeners understand, goes far beyond Montreal's English-speaking community. This affects Indigenous communities. This affects uh, uh, immigrant communities where they speak a third language, a different language. Uh, this is quite extensive when it comes to whose rights it tramples on. Well, the, the rights, that tram- again, my rights and your rights, Ben, because I know you're also an English-speaking Montrealer, we would have less of our rights being trampled on because theoretically we're still entitled to all of our government services in English. It's the Filipino community that comes here speaking perfect English, but not speaking French and is trying to learn French while they're working two jobs. Um, and and, and, and it, it, it's that kind of a, a person who's most affected. It's immigrant communities who are English speaking immigrant communities, whether it's people whose mother tongue is English or their first official language is English they're the ones that are more deeply affected than Quebec's historical English-speaking community. But one would assume that, that, that there will be an erosion of services just because uh, if this is in place. When, when we get to say, it's already, I remember having to translate hydro bills for my grandmother when I was nine. You know, one can feel that this would be, have a, would be a slippery slope when it came to services in English, one would think. Well, again, Hydro-Quebec is supposed to provide their services in English or French. And as far as I know, still they do if you ask them properly and you get the right bill. I remember your grandmother, a great curler, by the way. Um, She was the oldest curler at the Montreal West Curling Club when she retired. (laughs) Um, You know, like like this is is something that where the erosion is going to happen is number one, because it's going to be harder to get the services because you're going to have to prove you're entitled to them. Number two, the law is making it much more difficult for employers to require English as a job skill. You're, you're, before, as long as you reasonably assumed your employee would need to communicate in English, you could say that the position required English. Now you're supposed to do all of this stuff, like look through your whole department and whether there's somebody there that can serve people in English before you're allowed to require English in, on the job. And, and of course, this is from a government where the English speaking community makes up 12% of the population and makes up less than 1% of the Quebec civil service. So the ability for us to work in English, and, and by the way, the law also says that in order to have exemplary practices, civil servants are supposed to speak to each other in French, even if both of them are English. So it's going to not really attract more English-speaking people into the civil service. 
we've established that uh, it's certainly troublesome constitutionally, or at least according to the Charter, we've established that the notwithstanding clause is going to be used, that it's not really that effective in promoting the French language to begin with. When we come back, we'll talk about what can be done about it. That's next. I'm speaking with Anthony Housefather. He's the Liberal Member of Parliament for Mount Royal on the island of Montreal and a lawyer. We're talking about uh, Royal Assent this week for Bill 96, Quebec's sweeping new language law that really beefs up uh, Bill 101 from, from back in the 70s, if you remember back that far. Uh, really what it does in effect, though, is is limit uh, the use of, of other languages or English specifically, not necessarily to promote French, but uh, simply to perhaps silence uh, other languages uh, in the hopes of promoting French, one would assume. Uh, this can be challenged. I mean, it seems to be almost laughably an affront to the Charter. Uh, what can be done to fight it? And I know, you know, Tom Mulcair this week wrote a pretty pointed op-ed saying that, uh, you know that uh, the prime minister and the justice minister are hiding under their desks. Is that uh, is that fair comment? And what can be done? No, I mean it, it, it's not fair at this point because the prime minister and the justice minister have come out and spoken out against Bill ninety six this week, and the justice minister has made clear we're going to intervene in the Bill twenty one case, which is the other uh, very offensive Quebec law that bans people from wearing religious symbols and working in public sector, uh, certain public sector jobs, including teaching in public schools, um, and. And basically that also uses the notwithstanding clause preemptively and in an omnibus way. And that case, because it has a plaintiff, because it has factual information that was gathered to show the harm that's been done to individual people on the ground is probably the best way to get this issue before the Supreme Court. Because if we were to refer a case to the Supreme Court, we would ask the court questions, but we would have no underlying facts and nobody that was harmed that the court would have to look at and say, I am looking at that person, they were harmed, and I'm still going to tell them that we're not going to do anything. So the Bill 21 case is already before the Quebec Court of Appeals. It deals with the same issue as Bill 96. It's going to get to the Supreme Court in the next year, and the federal government is now going to intervene. And, and I think that the federal government has made clear that we're going to be ready to intervene uh, if there's other significant issues that arise in the courts, and there's going to be many cases on Bill 96. For example, Bill Section 133 of the Constitution Act says that the English and French language are equal before the courts of Quebec and the legislature of Quebec. The, this bill says that the French interpretation of laws, it, it comes before the English one. Um, so if, you have, if, you, if you're not able to resolve a, a difference, you have to look to the French version. That's clearly unconstitutional. The fact that the, the, the Quebec ministers are now going to ter- determine what judges need to be bilingual, which will slow down access to English court services, is unconstitutional. The fact that you need to have a certified French translation when you plead in court is unconstitutional. So I'm sure we will be involved very heavily in protecting the rights of English-speaking Quebecers under Section 133. And then there's a number of other areas where there's going to be challenges. And I'd finish this by saying that Tom Mulcair, when he was leader of the NDP, Um, in Parliament, and I served with him for four years, I never saw him fighting for English-speaking rights in Quebec when he was the leader of the New Democratic Party. Um, So so I've been fighting for English-speaking rights my entire career. I've done so throughout the time that I've been an MP, and I don't like... I don't feel it's fair when people are saying that English speaking MPs in Quebec from the Liberal Party are not saying or doing anything. I've been speaking against, out against Bill 96 from the beginning. Um, and the Justice Minister, David Lametti, uh, has taken clear positions on Bill 96 as well. 
But Anthony, we understand the politics here. I mean, Francois Legault, the Premier of Quebec, is certainly playing politics with this. He has no MLAs or, or he has no members of the Legislative Assembly or, or uh, on the uh, MNAs, I should say, on the island of Montreal. Uh, you know, Tom Mulcair, I'm sure at the time as NDP leader, was worried about votes in Quebec where the NDP were hoping to grow. The Liberal Party, of course, always looks at Quebec outside of Montreal for gains. I mean, there is a lot of politics here uh, when it comes. There is a political map here that people are well aware of. And uh, a lot of the rest of the province of Quebec isn't so worried about minority language rights. How much does that play into it here? How hard a struggle is it as an English MP from Montreal to make sure people aren't listening to that calculation? Very hard. I, I, I mean, I'm lucky that I am in the one party where I feel that there really is um, a focus on minority language rights. And I have allies um, in our caucus, um, you know, I, I, in order for us to get to where we were this week. Um, I've been positioning this law. I've been explaining this law to our caucus for the last year um, and, and, and saying it, it's clear we're going to need to intercede. We're going to need to take a stand. Um, uh, there's a very big reticence to do that when it was still a bill before it became a law, because there's always the hope that the legislature, the uh, committee looking at the law will amend it. Um, but, you know, I, I felt very strongly that we would get to a point where we needed to do this. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of times they say that the English speaking minority in Quebec is the most unpopular minority in the country uh, for politicians, because it's not an obvious um, community that people look at and say, I feel sympathy for them. Um, you know, but but in, 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 the, and in the context of Quebec, we're 12 percent of the population. We make up a significant percentage of people on safe island of Montreal seats that liberals have won for generations. Um, and people look at the seats outside of Montreal, like you said, and they and they and they don't want to lose those seats. So they don't want to sometimes be as vigorous as they could be in defending the rights of the minority, um, especially when it's English speaking Quebecers. But in, I think in this case, um, the Liberal Party has actually you know, lived up to its principles and come out against Bill 21 and come out against Bill 96. And we know that in some cases, perhaps that may cost us some votes. But but those are the principles of the party. Uh, how long will this challenge take uh, of, of Bill 21, the other, the uh, the secularism bill? Because if this is where we're going in terms of trying to fight this in the courts, or if this is where you're going to fight this in the courts, uh, how long might that take? And what happens in the interim? So, uh, so Bill 21, for example, there was an, uh, an injunction uh, that, 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 that was requested to stop Bill 21 from taking effect, and it was not granted. Um, so Bill 21, it has been in effect in Quebec while it's going through the court system. It's now before the Quebec Court of Appeals, um, and in my belief, it will be at the Supreme Court probably within the next year. Um, so you'll have a decision probably in the next two years on, on Bill 21. On Bill 96... There's already been a case that's been filed by the English Montreal School Board. I know there's many other cases that are being lined up to be filed. And in all of these cases as well, they're going to seek injunctions. They're going to seek interlocutory relief to prevent segments or parts of the bill from going into effect. And we'll have to see how the court rules at the, uh, you know, at the first instance to see if there's a, a way that the bill won't be applied until there's a final judgment. Anthony Housefather, thank you so much for, uh, for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Ben. Have a great weekend.